If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17? We are in a series that I've entitled The Poet King, all about the life of David. And I told you last week that David is... He is, of course, is a poet, right? And he, he's, uh, a, he's, a psalm, he's a psalmist, right? So he, he sings and he plays. He's a talented musician. But really what we're focusing on in this series is the symphony that is David's life. He has unbelievable highs and extremely painful lows. And there's so much about the life of David that means a lot to me personally. Uh, and I think I've gotten some feedback, I think, that really resonate with a lot of you uh, too. So I'm excited about uh, the morning. We're talking about David and Goliath. Uh, And it's funny, I have been preaching. I started, I preached my first sermon when I was 19 years old. Uh, What a 19-year-old has to say to a group of people is beyond me, but that's what I did. Uh, So that, by my count, I have been preaching for 18 years now. Do you realize that, Mom? 18 years. That's a long time. And so it's really fascinating when you try to understand different preachers' processes and how they kind of decide or come to what it is they'll speak about. There are some preachers, well-known preachers in, in the nation that will plan out like 18 months in advance. So they can tell you their topic for a very particular week 18 months out. I think that's amazing. And then, and then there's other preachers, even uh, my mentor, Andrew Womack, growing up, he says that he doesn't even know what he's going to talk about until he walks up and steps on the podium. Which I think is amazing. <laughs> Obviously, he doesn't have slides, right? Uh, but, but, but it's interesting that I've been thought, I, I have preached hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, probably possibly a thousand messages over the last uh, 16 years. And I have preached on David and Goliath precisely one time. And I think that's kind of interesting. It's such a big hallmark. It's kind of the vintage perennial story of the Old Testament. And I've thought about why I never talk about David and Goliath. And I think one of the reasons possibly is as far as I go, I tend to be more on the giant side of the continuum. So I'm not sure that the underdog story with the size really resonates with me in the same way that might resonate with other people. I'm, of course, not particularly tall, uh, but I am much broader and wider than the average human being. And it's weird when you look at the Bible, it, it certainly seems that there's hardly any big characters in the Bible that are good. Right to to be big is to be wicked and like you think about Saul right of course who loses his mind uh, and even in popular culture there's not a ton of of positive um, giants right of course you've got the jolly green giant you've got uh, the big friendly giant you've got Shrek. Uh, who, though an ogre, is mostly a positive character. And what does that tell you right there? That in order to be a positive ogre, you have to be green. And if I have ever seen a more racist sentiment than that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, there was a few years ago, I went to a camp, uh, a Young Life camp in Arizona, and they had a blob. Do you guys remember the blob? There was this big blob on the, on the water. Do you know what that is? Somebody sits on there and it's just half inflated, you know, huge balloon and you jump on this side and the other just go flying into the lake. Well, when I was there, I didn't want to be blobbed, but I did become the official blobber because when I got up, people shot. And uh, I've got a very large head. This is probably enough intro, but I've got a very large head uh, it's, and I wear a huge hat. 
Uh, for those of you who don't know, fitted hats, I wear like an eight, which is large. They don't sell them oftentimes. Uh, so it's kind of a party game sometimes if I'm wearing a hat for people to grab my hat, put it on and like marvel. I can fit a whole fist up there. It's incredible, a whole orange. Uh, so I'm a big guy. Of course, in in, uh, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17, we read the story of an evil uh, giant. And just to warn you, it is quite long. This is uh, 1 Samuel 17. It is the longest chapter in the story of David. In fact, it's almost twice as long as any other chapter uh, about David. But it's just so good. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's 58 quite long verses. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read a good deal of it just because I think it's one of the most vivid stories in the Old Testament, and I really like it. I hope you uh, like it too. So let's uh, dive in. Beginning in verse 2, I'm reading from the NIV. Of course, I've got the words for you on the screen. I have 59 slides, so get ready. Okay, I'll go fast. My record is 72 for the book of Job. Yeah, okay. Uh, Verse two, Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. The guy was like nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. This is all just details about his armor and his weaponry. Uh, His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighted 600 shekels. He, uh, his shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted, shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. Uh, if he is able to fight and kill me, here's the deal. We will become your subjects, but if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. He, uh, give me a man and let us fight each other. So he's just, he's just taunting Israel. And you can, you can sense in the text like just this sense of intimidation that these people are afraid of the giant. Verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Did you like how I just breezed over Ephrathite. I know, practiced. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. We met these three brothers last week, you'll recall. Verse 14, David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. So um, you could say it like this. In the, the Old Testament is ultimately about, the storyline is about following this, following this nation of Israel, right? This, this tribe, this, this nation. And a recurring enemy that you see in the Israelite life is these people known as the Philistines. And the Philistines lived remarkably close to the Israelites. In fact, um, if you can see here, I've got a little map 
you can see here, this is, this is Bethlehem. This is David's hometown. And there's these five, these five towns that essentially comprise uh, the Philistines. You have Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Gaza. And what was happening is that they were beginning to move into the Israelite space to where at one point they were within five miles of Bethlehem. And so that was really not a good thing. So what the Israelite army had to do is they had to go out, they, they assembled this volunteer army and they went out and then they had this weird kind of like standoff thing, right? Where one, one side was on one hill and the other was on another. This is where they likely think that it happened, this is the Valley of Elah. So you can see on the left, we have, this is where they think Saul's camp was. And then over here on the right, this is where they think the Philistine camp was. And then there was this creek that was in the middle uh, that was kind of where the potential battle might take place. And so they had a champion and this champion's name was Goliath. There's actually some conflicting information in the biblical manuscripts as far as exactly how big Goliath was, but popular wisdom, popular scholarship will tell us that he was likely right around nine feet tall, which is, which is very tall, but it's not inhuman. Uh, in fact, uh, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, this is, the, this is the tallest man who ever lived. His name is Robert Wadlow. That is not a doctored photo. That's the, that's the real photo. Uh, yeah, he passed away in 1940. His height at the tallest was 8 feet 11.1 inches. So less than one inch away from 9 feet tall. So this is possibly somewhere along where Goliath is. So it's not Jack and the Beanstalk tall, right? It's just real tall. But the thing that's different from Robert Wadlow from Goliath is Goliath was also a trained warrior, right? And so he was this ferocious uh, beast. And for every morning and evening for 40 days, he would come out and he would taunt the Israelites. Okay, verse 17. Now Jesse said to his son, son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are, uh, see how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So again, something that we talked about last week was this, that nobody except for Samuel, the prophet, and of course God, knew that David was going to be the next king, right? His family didn't know, and I don't even think David uh, knew. So he's essentially, uh, he's essentially a errand boy. He's, he's the pizza delivery guy. I think it's funny that the thing that he brings to the troops is bread and cheese. It just feels like a really unhealthy meal right before a battle, all that Gluten and fat and no protein. These were some bloated soldiers. Uh, but that's what he is. He's, he's the errand boy. Verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other, so they're going to their usual standoff positions. Verse 22, David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. But this time, David heard it. 
Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exemplify his family from taxes in Israel. I like the last one the best. 26, David asked the man standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is an old school diss. Oh yeah, well, you're uncircumcised. It's like, whoa, it's kind of personal. Chill, David. Verse 27, they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, remember him, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked. See, remember, Eliab had no respect for his brother. For him, David was just this little twerp who keeps asking these questions. And look what the older brother says. Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? See how he's downplaying David? These few sheep in the wilderness. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. I I just think this is such a classic teenager response from David. Now what have I done? Can I even speak? This just sounds like a teenager to me. God, can I even talk? Verse 30, he then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, this is what David says to the king, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. So here, David, he, he arrives and he hears the taunt of Goliath. And he's shocked that no one is going to do anything about it. And so he says, I'll, I'll do it. I'll fight the guy. I, I, don't, I don't mind. I'll kill him. Uh, he's this scrawny little uh, musician, Right, and look at what Saul says in verse 33. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When, I, when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Gave him two tries. <laughs> Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37, the Lord who rescued, this is David, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hands of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So basically the king didn't want David to fight Goliath. But David says, well, I killed the lion and I killed the bear. And Saul essentially says like, okay, you know, I don't like we have any better ideas. So go for it. Uh, And I think it's uh, worth noting that we talked about this a little bit last week, that when David was about to embark on the scariest thing he ever, 
he ever did. What he did was he rehearsed in his mind all the times that God had come through for him in the past. And I'm, I'm personally uh, persuaded that he wasn't doing this to uh, convince Saul. I think he was doing it to convince himself. You'll actually read later on in the text that, that David will anoint himself at times, right? Building himself up and remembering on the past victories. Verse 38, here we go. You doing Okay. All right, you guys, are, you guys are so great. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. This is, I really want to pay attention to this. He, uh, Saul dressed David in his own tunic, right? He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened, uh, fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. There's definitely some humor happening here. You know, if you can picture this little tiny guy putting on massive armor and trying to walk and falling over and kind of waddling along. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. So in the story of David, after he has found his way into this place of having the courage to actually go out and do something for God, now he is confronted with this awkward phase of trying on Saul's armor, right? And I wonder if you have ever been at the place where you're finally at a place where you're willing to go and do something for God. And now you're confronted with the question of how you might go about that, right? And so David here, he's trying on different ways, you know, he's trying on different armor in the same way maybe you can see yourself, trying different ways of doing things, just kind of waddling along in essentially what someone else's armor. And, and not realizing, trying to be exactly like your mentor or your leader or your king, maybe in this particular uh, scenario, and not realizing that your, your insistence on mimicking someone else and the exact way that they did it is the very thing that ends up holding you back, right? Like David had the courage uh, to do something. And as soon as he was uh, at that place where he had the courage, all of a sudden he was confronted with other people's expectations of him, right? People who had the best intentions in the world, right? Like I, Saul was not trying to make David fail, He's trying to help him. You know, if you're going to go fight a giant, like I'm pretty certain that what you don't bring is your shepherding tools. You know, like I I think an armor is probably pretty appropriate uh, for this scenario. So Saul is not trying to get David uh, to fail. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with Saul's armor, right? There's nothing sinful about Saul's armor. It's just that it's that, Saul's armor, right? And it's not, it's not David's. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fit him. I hope you can see yourself in that. There's, there's a lot of places in life that you have to figure out what does and does not work for you. There's absolute truth. We talked about that week four last. That's absolutely right. And then there's also things in life that, that are you finding what works for you and you being true to what God has uniquely called you to do and who God has uniquely called you to be. Right, and so don't, don't misunderstand me. I feel like I'm wanting to disclaim a lot more of my sermons. I don't know if that means I'm growing up. But uh, don't misunderstand me. I think there's absolutely, like there's, there's value, huge value in having mentors in your life, right? Where uh, you, you have someone and, and they've done something smart and you're able to learn from them or they've done lots of stupid things and you're able to learn from them, probably a combination of the two, right? I think that there's huge value in mentors. People who walk with wise people become wise. Uh, Solomon would say people who hang out with fools become fools. So I totally believe that. But I I also believe this, that at some point you have to be the ultimate um, 
judge for who God has called you to be and how you have to go about doing the thing that God has called you to do. Uh, the only examples I have are my own, right? And so I, I hate talking about too much ministry stuff. But again, like I told you, I, I've started preaching when I was 19. Uh, and so I've been preaching for something like, you know, 17 or 18 years, something like that. And I can tell you, for, for me personally, it was this it was this huge, at first it was just fun and it was just trying to survive, but it didn't take real long for me and no one did it to me except for me. It didn't take real long for me to start feeling this pressure of having to like make it in ministry and in church, in church culture. You, you know how you can like make it big in the world? Well, you can make it big in the church too, especially in youth ministry. Right, and so I, I was starting to feel this pressure. Like I hadn't been preaching for a long time, but I started feeling this pressure of, how I was supposed to be in a way, like talking in a way that would cause me to become desirable to bring to conferences around the nation, right? That I I would have this message and this style that was really good for conferences. And so I'd be traveling and I'd be flying and there'd be just so much, um, I don't know, I guess kind of pressure in doing in doing it exactly how they wanted me to do it. And so for me, I won't even talk about all the different phases where I was like trying on other people's armor. It's like, again, totally cool. Just not mine. Just not, just not for me. Uh, you know, like <laughs> trying to insert. I had one time I had on my phone a list of like cool Christian, Christianese filler phrases Come on, somebody. Someone give God some praise in this place tonight. Like I had, I had an actual list of those on my phone, right? Again, perfectly good armor. It's not my armor, right? And years ago, I actually had lunch with uh, one of my friends and they told me this. They said, they said David, you, you could be like one of those conference speaker guys. They said, your, your content is some of the best I've ever heard. They said, but you just need to learn to deliver it with a little more style. You're going to feel like the pressure to come and tell me that I have style or whatever. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I, I do have style. I have my own style. It's just not, it's just not um, conference speaker guy style. And I actually love that about me. I, 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 love, I, I love being, oh, oh, God. But, but you know, it's just this idea of feeling that pressure to, um, to be and to do someone else and trying to copy other people. What's really funny is when I was in Bible college, about the only bad grade I ever got was in the preaching class. I got almost straight A's. Uh, but then when it came to the preaching, that was just about the only bad grade I got. And some of you are thinking like, well, that explains everything. <laughs> well, you know, I think there's, there's just so many examples. There's so many examples of this, but I think you think about like parenting, right? Um, my wife and I, we have uh, one daughter. And so we're now all of a sudden having to evaluate a lot of like what it is to be a healthy parent. What is it to be a good parent? What do good parents do here? What do good parents do uh, there? And um, I can tell you like for my, sis- my sister and her husband, AJ, they have four kids. I can't even conceive of how that works logistically, right? There's two of us and only one of grace. And sometimes I feel like we are completely outnumbered. So I can imagine four to one, but, um, you know, there's, there's so much, there's so many helpful people when it comes to being a parent. Every parent in the room knows this. There's helpful people who are trying to be helpful, but really they're trying to give you advice in how you are to parent your own kids, 
perfectly good armor, just maybe not yours, right? And I know a lot of you guys were in outlet, you know, there's our 5 p.m. service. And I think for me, in, in a lot of ways, I think what, what outlet was, it was a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But for me, I think one, one thing that outlet was, was it was this time that for me, I was able to come out and maybe take off Saul's armor and discover what my own armor was. You know, and uh, I guess my point in all of this is this, that you can make yourself miserable if you spend too much time thinking about all of that stuff, right? Whether, you know, who, the expectations that you have on, on yourself and what other people expect of you. And that's also true for communities, uh, by the way. That's why I don't waste a lot of brain power, personally, trying to describe us. You know, like, people will come and ask me, like, well, are you, are you seeker-sensitive? Are you, are you emergent? Are you reformed? Are you Pentecostal? Are you evangelical? Like, I, don't make me hit you, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, Pastor Marshall, I'm actually perfectly comfortable with who we are, really, I am. I think, I think we're this combination of um, old school and new school. I think, I think we're smart, but I think we're also loving. Um, so I love, I love who we are, but just at some point, I... I too much ministry talk, but at some point for you in your own life, you are going to have to shake off the expectations of other people and really be true to who God has called you to be. If you don't do that, my, my concern is this, is that you end up downplaying the things that to God are the most precious. Uh, so, so maybe what is that for you, right? What is it that you feel the pressure to do or feel the pressure uh, to be, and you're going to have to shake off those expectations at some point if you want to be true to God has called you to be. Okay, verse 40. Are you guys hot? Jeez. Yeah, I don't know why I'm a sweaty person. Mom, did I get it from one of you guys? Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Okay, so here, this is, this is interesting that we have um, David, he, he rejects the sword and instead opts to fight the giant with five smooth stones. And if you're not familiar with battle, that's an unusual weapon. Right, even in David's time, that was reasonably unsophisticated technology. Right, like I, I can certainly assume that Saul's armor and weaponry at the time was very high tech and top of of the line. But he rejects all that and he opts for this low tech, common these five stones. It was the it was the weapon that he knew how to use. Right, this was another good. This was a good weapon, but it wasn't the weapon that he knew how to use. Instead, he went back to what he already knew. He trusted that God would take something super regular like a rock and do something amazing with it. That's the idea, right? That there's nothing. They they were not magical rocks, right? This is not a story about how rocks can be magic. Sometimes, right? The 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 plainness of the rock is the actual point. Right, the, the reason the story means something is because this is not normally a weapon that you would defeat uh, a giant with. And how, how there's 
regular things, small things, seemingly insignificant things that God can really use in really amazing ways. I think a few years ago, we did this um, <clears throat> outreach deal with their Storm Student Conference where, uh, and some of you outlet people know because you helped too, but we bought all those soccer balls. You guys remember that? So there was these um, sweet young African refugees here in, in town. And so what we, as a church, we all chipped in and we bought them like, I don't know, couple hundred soccer balls because they love, they, they, they said they, they'll like kick anything. Anything will be a soccer ball, right? They'll just trash. They'll just put trash on the ground and they'll be playing soccer. So we bought all these soccer balls and what they wanted is they wanted the youth group to come and play the kids, play them soccer, right? So there's these little kids. And so there was maybe, maybe 50 students and maybe 50 of these sweet little African kids that knew way more about soccer than any of us. And it was interesting because for me, I was, I was standing there watching just this interaction happen. And I was thinking like, I felt God's presence there in a way that I, a lot of times don't. And I'm a pastor, right? I, I, I actually do this for a living, but there was something that meant so much to me there. And I think part of the point was this, is that God was able to use something so ordinary like a soccer ball to bring real life change. I think about even Love ABQ, it's our uh, outreach ministry here. Love ABQ does hardly anything that is very extremely sexy. You know what I mean? It's a very meat and potatoes ministry. It's giving food to people who are hungry. It's giving clothes to people who need clothes, right? It's, give, it's, it's just helping people in the city. And so I, I think it's, it's interesting though, because we'll go and we'll hand out like these turkeys, you know, Thanksgiving. So we'll hand out turkey dinners. It gets especially interesting when, when people don't speak English. So we can't even say, hey, we're from Believer Center. We've got a turkey and hope you know Jesus really loves you. It's just like, hola, and just give it to them. Right, and they might say thank you or something like that, but that's pretty much that's pretty much what it is. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to hand out a turkey, right? It doesn't take an astrophysicist to like kick a soccer ball with a sweet little African refugee, right? But that but that's the whole point. That's precisely the point: is that God is able to use these things that to us seem very um, regular. That God's able to use our normal stuff to do something amazing. This story of David and Goliath is not a story about what an amazing shot David was, right? Or what a great marksman. I don't even know if that's the right word for a slingshot. Great aim, like that's not what the story is about. It's how, it's how David had the, the faith to offer up completely normal things, right? As, as an offering to God, ordinary rocks and believing that God just might do something amazing with them. He's, what he's doing is he's giving God the opportunity to show up, right? And you think about like the ordinary things that are required to make a church function like this church, right? You think about all of these different jobs. I mean, cleaning the toilets, changing diapers, handing out food from the Love ABQ van, vacuuming, you know, all this stuff, running cameras, like hardly any of that uh, is glamorous, right? But, but see, I'm the one I'm the one who gets the phone calls. I'm the one who gets the emails of people who come on to the property and they say, man, as soon as I came onto the property, I felt like there was, there was something, I felt like I was coming home because there was someone or some people who are like ushering these people into the kingdom of God. That's not what these people say, but that's what they mean. 
right? That there's, that there's people who, whose lives are changed because of the very ordinary acts that we have to offer. The difference is this, is that we offer them up in the name of the Lord. That's the difference, right? There's nothing magic about changing a diaper. I realize that. But changing a diaper in the name of the Lord can absolutely be a huge thing in a way that can really change people's lives. So just understand that when you get an opportunity to serve at this church, it's always about saving, uh, changing lives. Always about. Always about changing lives. And it's not about us doing amazing things. It's us doing ordinary things and believing that God is able to add the force behind it to really make the rock move. Right, think, about, think about what Jesus, even he just said, the simple act of offering a cup of cold water, right, can be the thing that changes somebody's life, right? Or, or even the, the boy with the lunch, right? It's 5,000 people and they're all hungry and a boy has five tiny pieces of bread and two tiny little fish, right? And he's, he offers it to God and God's able to feed 5,000 people. That is not a story about magic bread, Right? It's not like, you know, this bread was so dense that it fed this one piece of feet a thousand people. Like, it's not about magic bread. The point of the story is that the bread is normal, is regular, and it seems ordinary. But ordinary things offered to God can sometimes become extraordinary. Verse 41. I'll show you what I mean. Meanwhile, the Philistine, uh, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked over and saw that there was little more, uh, that he was little more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. So see, this like, well, thanks for your faith, David. You know, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to, I'm going to feed your flesh to the animals. And I think it's really interesting the, the pushback that David gets because before, before David steps out in, in faith, the, uh, the insults were general, right? He was talking to all of the Israelite armies. But as soon as David becomes the one who steps out in faith, that's when the, tar- that's when the, that's when the attacks get more personal, Right? And I don't know if you've ever felt like that, where you felt like, man, I was trying to like, do something cool for God, and as soon as I did that, like, people started attacking me. Or it's like, I, I'm trying to do something cool for God, and people don't even recognize how unselfish I'm being here. Right? It doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Right? You think about, think about David in this, it, his first feedback from stepping out of faith is not a positive one. It's a negative one. The first thing he feels and, and can you even think, just even in the natural here, I think it's extremely possible that David, don't you think, he could, in this story, he could actually be kind of psyched out about it, right? He could actually be like, my God, I think, I think they might be right, right? Like, this is, this is stupid. I've got, a, I've got five of these tiny sticks. This is a nine-foot-tall man. Like, what am, I, what am I even doing here? Just because you get pushback doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Uh, these TVs up here are broken, so I have no idea what time it is. So when it becomes time, just go, Kah! oh no. Verse 45, and I don't have a watch. Marshall was preaching and he got so passionate for first service that he triggered his Siri watch and it started talking back to him during the message. It was really pretty good. 
Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistines ar- Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. Listen to this, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. 51, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. No one asked him to do this, which I just find it's like extra credit above and beyond the call of duty here, David. He's just too pumped. (laughs) He didn't want to stop. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then lastly, verse 54, David uh, took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapon in his own tent. It's a beautiful story. Uh, I think it's weird. At least I thought for a long time it was weird that that David took the head with him. And I was thinking like, well, why did he take the head? It wasn't because it was just for some weird like trophy to put chips in or something like that. It, It... it was actually, and it was interesting that he didn't take it back to Bethlehem where he lived. He actually took it. He just passed his hometown, went, I think, five more miles up to, or to Jerusalem, five miles farther to Jerusalem. And you think like, well, why was he doing that? Essentially, um, he was, was wanting to offer proof, right? That that essentially was happening. Some people might say that even at this point in David's life, even early on, he's starting to make a claim for the throne. So it's pretty interesting. And so we'll um, catch up on that in, in a little while. Here's what I think is significant about the story. Um, that there was nothing special about the rocks. I think, that, I think that actually matters. And in the same way, that for you, I feel like maybe you feel like your gifts and your talents are in a lot of ways very ordinary. Right? Like, but, the, but the truth is this, that when it comes to living a life for God, it's not about being like the most unbelievable singer or like the most unbelievable preacher guy or like the most unbelievable, you know, business. Per- like it's not about being the most unbelievable anything. It's, it's, about, it's about having the courage to offer it to God and give him the opportunity to show up and do something amazing. And sometimes he does. Right? You, you might say it like this. It looked like David won the battle when he killed Goliath, but really he won the battle when he had the courage to get on the battlefield and throw the rock. Right? That, that's where most people get stuck. If I would be so bold, that's probably where you get stuck. Right? Where it's, it's not that you had been on the battlefield and you, that, that is true for some of you, but most of you have not been on the battlefield and feel like you lost most of you have just psyched yourself out as to why the thing that you 
do or the, the person that you are, why it doesn't matter. And so you never even get on the battlefield. You never give a chance. Um, you never give God a chance to do anything. And so for me, if you would allow me to be so bold, this, this idea of doing something really ordinary and believing that God can add supernatural force behind it, that's really what this 1230 service is to me, right? Because we had this thing, right, for, for this outlet people in the room, we had this thing that was really nice and comfortable, right? We, you know, we were in this room, it was nice, it was safe, it was predictable, um, it was easy, but, but for me, as a, as a pastor and even just as a person, like I need, I need to be finding my way to this place where I'm reliant on the spirit of God to do something, right? Where I'm believing that something can happen, where there's a vision that I'm working towards and I'm believing, right? And so this, I, I have so little interest in leading a church that is just for heavily churched people. It is not what I'm passionate about, right? It, not only them, I'm also passionate about reaching other people. Like I want this to be a, a ministry that reaches uh, your friends. I want this to be a ministry that reaches your family. And so there's this partnership that happens, right? Where, I'm, where I put myself out there and you guys put yourself out there inviting people, right? So where we're believing um, that God might take what's really ordinary for us and turning it into something extraordinary. And I know like inviting people to church is really, is really awkward. You just have to understand this, that you have the opportunity right now to, to live your life however you want it. And some people, too many people, will live their life that just, just so safe, you know, where there's like no chance of ever something weird happening. You know, there's no chance of ever failing. There's no chance of anything going bad. You know, and they just live their whole life on the grandstand where there's no, there's no dependency of the spirit, right? There's no risk. There's no chance uh, to fail. And, and I just don't, I just can't live like that. Um, and so, so what I'm believing, uh, and I want you to believe with me, of course, is that, that this ministry, this church and this ministry, is not something that is just this common thing, even though it is us being common, regular people, right? I, I'm sure I have proved that to you a thousand times over. Like, I am not some magical prophet, you know, thing, but... But I do believe this, that when I offer my ordinary gifts, that God can come and do something amazing. And that's true for the worship team. That's true for our pastors. That's true for the greeters. That's true for the people who are working in the youth ministry right now, in the, in the children's church ministry. What we're believing is that as we offer our very regular gifts, that God can come and do something amazing and bring about real life change. So I'm about done. Uh, so we can go ahead and get ready uh, Here's the question that I have for you today. Uh, and it's really simple, but it, it's meant a lot to me over the years. This is the question. What is the rock God has placed in your hand? What is the rock God has placed in your hand? I know you're not this unbelievable prophet person, but what has God put on the inside of you that would enable you to make a difference in someone else's life? And I want to broaden it. I feel like I've talked about ministry stuff too much. I, I, I think that you have been anointed and gifted, some of you, for the job that God currently has you in. Like that, that, that you have been gifted for that and that God would use that 
to do something really amazing in the lives of other people. I believe that God has gifted people in this room and anointed people in this room to be, to be um, the kingdom of God in their family. Right? I, I come from a very privileged family that, you know, I believe in God my whole life. I came to this church my whole life. Uh, so I'm really lucky. I understand that that's not the case for some of you. And so some of you, maybe what God would do in you when we're talking about David here is that you would start to think of yourself as the carrier of the presence of God into your family. Not that you're some crazy preacher person, not that you're some, the most gifted singer of all times, but, but that you would be someone who is willing to put themselves out there and hope that maybe God just might do something. I think what's, what would really be tragic is this, is that you would be so unimpressed with your own rock that you wouldn't use it, right? And that, that's the thing, of course, right? When, when it's your rock, you're never impressed, <laughs> right? Like I tell you, for me, it's, it's not impressive. You're not impressed with your own gifts, I can tell you for, for me personally, I am so utterly and tragically unimpressed with every sermon I preach. Like the fact, the fact that people are, um, people are blessed by what I would say is lit, literally a huge surprise to me every time. And this is not something like, oh, our pastor is so humble thing. I honestly mean it. Like I am, I am unbelievably unimpressed with my own message all the time. And I bet that might be the same way for you. Right, that you look at your own life, you look at your neighbor, and it's like, well, maybe God might do something cool in them, but not in me. But that's the thing, right? Is that you're not impressed with your own gift. The question is this do you have the courage to get on the battlefield, throw the rock, and see what God might do? What is the rock that God has placed in your hand? And I don't want it to be too spiritual. Like if it's if if, you, if this gets too spiritual, I think you'll miss the point. I'm talking about regular things. I'm talking about you in your work, like you in your family, you raising your children, right? Like what is it that God has put in your hand that you could use in faith? I, I, I love, I don't know if you guys have heard of, there's this bishop from the fifth century. His name is Caesarius. Uh, well, he, he talks about the story of David and Goliath. And I, I know this is like, I don't know, scholarship. It's kind of changed a little bit. But he talks about how David in the story of David and Goliath is a foreshadowing of Jesus. That there's like the armies of the angels on one side and there's the army of darkness on the other, right? And, and there's no one who will come and confront the darkness. And ultimately it's Jesus who would come forward and win the victory. And for me, that's actually a, a really great encouragement when we're talking about this, because it, it reminds me that it's, it's God's battle and it's not mine, right? It's not just God's victory, it's God's battle. I, that, that's helpful for me. You know what I mean? When I'm thinking about like doing something cool for God, it's not like God might get on board with my battle. Like the battle itself is the Lord. And it's not about being the most talented anything, right? And also let me just say this. It's not about having the perfect faith. I need to be careful because this, this is a, certainly a story that has a lot to do with faith, right? But, but just understand this, that it took faith to throw the rocks at all, right? This is what I like to say. God doesn't require perfect faith. He requires enough faith to get you moving. It's like pretty good preaching actually, Right? doesn't require perfect faith, but he does require enough faith to get you moving. So how do you know if you have enough faith? Well, because you're on the battlefield, 
right? You actually have given something to God that he might come and use, right? But but what is that for you? I can tell you for me, like I, I have this, I have this somewhat speaking gift. And another thing that God has placed in my hand, just to elicit ideas in your own hearts, God has given me the gift of compassion. So I, I feel when other people hurt. I can feel it, right? And that, that's, that is a gift that I have. It's one of the things that makes me a good pastor. And I'm not bragging. This is just a gift that God has given me, right? So what is that for you? Maybe, maybe you're really smart, right? Maybe you're really good with cars. I destroyed my engine this past week, so that's why I'm thinking about cars. Maybe you're really good with cars uh, or, you know, I don't know, good with houses and good with construction or you can paint or, gosh, you can cook or you can clean or you, know, you can sing, you can play, in, I don't know, whatever. There's a million different things. The question is this, have you offered that to God in, in, and honestly thought, how might God use me through that? You may be thinking, painting? How would God use paint? A thousand different ways, right? And we can all see that when God would use a painter to change someone's heart, how incredible that is for us. We can all see it. You're not impressed with your own gift, but that's the way that it works. So it's not about being the best It's not about being the most famous, like we talked about last week. It's about having the courage and the faith to offer what you do have to God and believe that he might do something amazing. So as they pass uh, communion, what I want you to do is this. I'd like you to think essentially like this. Just spend a minute being yourself, right? And honestly, looking with God at who you are and who he's made you. Right, like, honestly, think about it. Like, what is, what is it that is the rock that God has given you, right? What, what are the gifts that God has given you? What are the talents that God has given you? And then just offer that to God and see how he might use your very ordinary gifts to do something amazing in the world. Thanks, you guys. Can